You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. So just to set the scene for a second, this is when I'm at Brandon Wilson's collection agency in Maine, and I go down to the basement and I meet this woman who introduces herself as Ma Barker, who is really Brandon's mother, who basically makes Philly cheesesteaks for the guys in the basement. And she's talking about her kids. And I ask her, she says, my real name's not Ma Barker. And I say, why, why Ma Barker? And she says, Ma Barker was this woman in the 1920s who had her sons rob banks for her. But then she kept all the money, said Darlene with a laugh. Truth is, I always tried to keep my boys out of trouble, but it never worked. Brandon eventually joined our conversation, and he told me that despite everything he had gone through, all the arrests and the lockups and the hardships, he never really doubted his own self-worth, in part, surprisingly enough, because of his lineage. I'm related to John Quincy Adams, he told me. Brandon traced his Irish lineage back to his great-grandfather, a vaudeville actor from Cork, whose name, oddly enough, was Major English. Darlene, who was still sitting nearby, chimed in. We're also related to John Thompson of Thompson Island in Boston Harbor. That's why we have some Indian blood, Brandon said. Thompson or some other relative was kidnapped in the War of 1812 or the French and Indian War, Darlene explained. And he brought back a squaw, and that's where the Indian blood came from. Ah, who knows who was fucking who back in the tool sheds in the 1800s, added Brandon. They can write whatever they want on paper. Family lineage only did so much, Brandon concluded. After that, it was his common sense and his street sense that enabled him to survive. I learned all my kicks and punches in dancing school, he told us. Dancing school, I said incredulously. You? He wasn't afraid to try things, said Darlene. I went to the school and for the recital we did Kung Fu Fighter. You remember that one? He had a lot of confidence. He wasn't afraid of dancing, said Darlene. Years later, I used those same moves to beat people up, said Brandon. That's not why I sent him to dancing school, said his mother. It was three gay ten-year-olds, me, and a bunch of chicks, said Brandon. They were all there to control their weight, said Darlene. That was a long time ago, said Brandon. I used to worry about you. Do you still worry about me, Ma? I have two dead kids. You could die of a heart attack any day because you eat too much bacon. You can't call life. Life calls you. Yeah, that, that moment, I mean, it's just like... You can't make it up. I couldn't write dialogue that well. And him and his ma remembering, you know, the scene, it was just, you know, kind of perfect. Jake Halpern is the author of Fame Junkies and Braving a Home and the co-author of two young adult novels. His new book is Bad Paper, Chasing Debt from Wall Street to the Underworld. Thank you for joining me, Jake. Hey, great to be here. Jake, this is such an incredible story of your diving into this world that most of us don't even know existed. What clued you to the existence of this world? Well, you know, it was my mother, really. She, a few years ago, must have been about five years now, she told me that she was being hounded for a debt that wasn't hers. And the collector was calling her at work um, just nonstop. And eventually, um, she paid him. And my mother is, is a tough cookie. She does not cave easily. So I was impressed by whoever. Basically, it sounded like a shakedown. So I was kind of impressed and horrified, I should say. So I started doing some research, and I found out that there was this whole world of debt buying that went on, that when an original creditor, be it a department store or a bank or a payday lender, can't collect on an unpaid account after about 180 days, they sell it for pennies on the dollar into this world of debt buyers who buy it and sell it and buy it and sell it. And as the debt goes further and further down the food chain, if you're not paying the first buyer, the second buyer, the third buyer, the tactics get harder. And also the industry, the whole practice gets more lawless. So people are just getting hold of names and calling people for debts that aren't theirs, or they're selling one debt to multiple people, and those people all think they own it. So I was getting a little bit of a sense into this world, and I decided I'd I was going to do a, a, a piece from the perspective, uh, write a magazine piece from the perspective of a collector. And I did that. And I, I met this guy, Jimmy, who's a character in my book. And I spent about a week with him in his life. And I wrote it up for The New Yorker. 
And the short version of this is that Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B, ended up optioning that story and sent me back to Buffalo with the screenwriter to to help him kind of talk to more people in this world. And very few people wanted to talk for the investigative piece, but when I was back with Brad Pitt's screenwriter, everyone wanted to talk. And that's where I really started to meet these characters, um, including Brandon and Aaron, who become the central characters of Bad Paper. This is that's such a great story <laughs> in and of itself. It's like something out of this book, which is truly larger than life. L- let's talk about Aaron, who who you introduce at the beginning of the book. He's the, I guess, the classiest person, and he comes from a, a very highly pedigreed background. So talk about a little bit about his background, which does come from the deadly city of Buffalo. Yeah, so when I went... I guess I should start with my meeting of Aaron. When I went back to Buffalo with the screenwriter for this Brad Pitt production, I lined up an interview, I lined up a meeting with me and Aaron and the screenwriter. And eventually, that's how I kind of really got to talking to Aaron. And then eventually, he agreed to tell his story for me in a kind of nonfiction version. And Aaron comes from a very well-known, very wealthy family Uh, in Buffalo. His father ran this hugely profitable personal injury and plaintiff's firm. And his father was was a well-known local playboy. He, he, uh, and they lived in this very large mansion in a kind of prominent neighborhood near the Albright Knox Museum. And so Aaron grew up definitely in a very privileged environment. So he leaves Buffalo, he gets his MBA, and he goes into the world of banking. He works at Bank of America, um, in fact, at one point he goes, I believe it was with, he was with the HSBC at the time. He went to London and was part of their executive training course. And he's on his way to kind of greatness in banking. But he misses his family in Buffalo. He feels like, you know, there's something about the city that's drawing him back. Everyone, he meets a woman who's an also an upstate New York person, and they move back to Buffalo. And he kind of gets off the fast track. And so when he's back in Buffalo... He's working at this local Bank of America office, and he says, I'm literally like spinning my chair around and throwing pencils at the ceiling because I've got nothing to do. And he discovers around this time that Buffalo is the collection capital of, of the world, or, or, or of the country at least. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the major hubs of the industry. And all of these entrepreneurs in the city are buying paper, which is basically unpaid accounts from the banks and other creditors for pennies on the dollar, opening a small collection shop and turning a profit. And Aaron's intrigued by this. So he goes in on it. He puts his toe in the water a little bit. And he he starts buying paper from this guy named Brandon Wilson. And at first he knows very little about Brandon, but what he does know is the paper that he buys – uh, and when he gives them to his collectors, the profits are astronomical. He's he's buying a $30,000 portfolio of, of debt and in three months making 90000 and then selling that portfolio for more than he bought it for. Um, and he had seen – he was from Wall Street. He knew what – you could make a good killing on the market. But this was kind of blowing his mind. And this is what kind of lures him to kind of eventually go full hog into this business. Tell me what you mean by the word paper. This is really important to understand. It's a, it's a great question. So paper, what it means is it's what, it's what these guys call the debt, the unpaid accounts that the banks are selling off. The irony is that it's not really actually paper. It's just an Excel spreadsheet. In fact, it would probably be a whole lot better if there was more paper, meaning accompanying documents, account statements, original signed contracts. But the paper that's being bought and sold are really basically just these Excel spreadsheets that have the debtor's name, address, social security number, the day the account was open and closed in a balance. And you're basically buying this on a gamble. I'm, I'm buying it for two cents on the dollar on the hope that if I can find you and get you to pay even a third of what you owe, that it's going to pay off very handsomely for me. Now, these debts aren't all necessarily still active. Could you could you talk uh, uh, about how buying paper that's what you call out of stat? Yeah. Okay, so this is good because this brings us back to Brandon um, Wilson. So um, – <laughs> 
So Aaron, if you remember in this at, at this point, so Aaron is going into the business and he's um, he's 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 buying this paper from this guy named Brandon Wilson, who's finding him these deals where he's making a ton of money. He's buying the paper cheaply and he's 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 tripling his money often. And he becomes intrigued by who Brandon is. And Brandon is a is a former armed robber who's done 10 years in prison and has now reinvented himself as a debt collector and as a broker who buys and sells paper. And here's where we get to the, your question. Brandon's specialty is buying and selling what he calls crap. And by this, he means old debt that everyone else thinks is worthless, but which in fact has value to it. So um, people, for one reason or another, think no one's going to pay this. It's 10 years old. Uh, but Brandon has found out some in- intelligence that this particular portfolio of debt has been sitting in a call center in Brazil for five years and no one's touched it. And he is confident that once his collectors start working it, it's going to actually pay. And the thing about this old debt and this crap, as he calls it, is that sometimes it's old enough that it's beyond the statute of limitations. So the, each state has a law that says after three years or six years, it varies from state to state, that particular debt is no longer legally enforceable. It's so old that you, you, there's, you can't sue on it. And so he's calling up debtors and they are not legally obligated to pay him, but they're still paying him. Now, it's a funny kind of almost loophole in the law There are things that Brandon can't say, like he can't say, I'm going to sue you on this debt because that would be a lie. But he's also not telling them, hey, just so you know, there's no, this is not legally enforceable and I can't bring you to court and make you pay this. He's just saying, here's your debt. This is what you owe. I am the rightful owner of it. You must now pay me. And so he's doing quite well for himself on this old out of stat debt. Brandon is such a great character. He uh, early on he pronounces that he's making more money collecting debt than he ever did as a bank robber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He tells a story about he he he's shortly after prison he goes and gets a job uh, at a debt collection agency and he's got he's got the gift of gab. He's this guy from from Boston. He grew up in in the projects in Somerville and um, he's a real talker. And, and he's a very bright guy, too, that must be said. And he, he's, he's very good at getting people to pay on the phone. And when he goes to get his first bonus check, it's for, he, he says, I drove up to the bank and they, sent, they gave me like $10,000 in cash. And I thought, oh, my God, this is better than the days when I used to rob the bank. And, 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 and he kind of realizes that collections is this business that will allow him to kind of be redeemed and kind of make money but not run afoul of the law. Now, meanwhile, we have Aaron. He's the a board banker who decides um, that he might make some spare change in this debt collection. Does very well. Talk about the package. Right. So what happens is to understand the package, Brandon, just a word or more too about Brandon and Aaron, that collaboration goes so well that, that, that Aaron decides that he wants to start doing this on a massive scale. And he rounds up some investors and he gets together eight investors and they give him a total of $14 million. And this is going to be his trial run. If this goes well, they're going to give him even more money. And he then goes to Brandon and says, Brandon, you're my basically going to be my ace in the hole. You go out and find really good paper and we're going to just make a killing on this. So Brandon starts looking for paper and he learns that there's a collection agency in Ohio called Hudson and Keys. And he gets word that Hudson and Keys is in financial trouble, that they're not making enough money. And therefore, they're starting to sell out their inventory of paper. And because they're desperate, they're selling that inventory for much cheaper than they otherwise would. So he kind of smells blood in the water, if you will. And he goes to Hudson and Keys and starts buying up their inventory very cheaply and sending this paper to Aaron and Aaron's collectors. And the paper's great. It's like gold for Aaron. There's a problem, though. Early on in this deal with Hudson and Keys, Aaron gets a a portfolio of debt and a problem (laughs) rears its head and this is how it comes onto his radar Aaron gets a call one day from one of the guys that runs one of his collection centers and they say we're getting told by collectors that they've already paid off the debts that our guys are trying to collect on paid off these debts to somebody else 
And Aaron says, how is that possible? I'm the owner of this. There's no way that could be. And the guy says, I think someone else has access to these files. That's what they start to, to, to fear and worry, that somehow some mysterious rogue element has gotten into a hold of these files and is basically collecting them and liquidating them before Aaron's collectors can. It, it, and it's this kind of spooky moment for him. So he knows at this moment from past experience that he, but bringing a lawsuit or even going to the authorities is not going to give him the kind of immediate intervention that he needs, and so he calls Brandon. And I guess we can continue with the story, but the package ends up being this, this piece of debt, this parcel of debt that he realizes has been stolen. And what I do in the book is I follow the package from kind of start to finish as, as they buy it and then set out to retrieve it. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is that this notion of uh, the paper itself, because it's all just Excel files, it's like everything else on the Internet. It's easily stolen, instantly duplicated, and impossible to trace once either of those things has been done. So that you're dealing in something that can just multiply like the sorcerer's apprentice. That's exactly right. And if you think about it, if I have this spreadsheet and I have your name and your social security number and your address and I can call you up and I can sound convincing on the phone um, and I know all this intimate information about you, you would never in a million years assume or guess that it's because I stole that information and that I'm not the rightful owner of it. And that's that's what happens. And so, yeah, that's the thing. If it was paper in the old days, it would be harder to imagine. But knowing how easy it is to copy, as you say, um, and pass along electronic files, this happens all too easily. Uh, there's a, a figure in this book who I think is the bad paper equivalent of Kaiser Zose <laughs> and even has a similar name, Kenny. Talk about Kenny and Bill. Yeah, so what happens is is that just to kind of continue with the story that leads up to them, Brandon is now charged with finding who's collecting these accounts. And the next part of the story is really kind of interesting and unexpected. He, he eventually is able to talk to some of the debtors that paid the wrong guy, and he finds out who processed the payments, and he traces it back to this shop in Buffalo that's owned by a guy named Bill. And he, he gets Bill on the phone, and he says, what's going on? You're collecting on my paper. This, I've got to put an end to this. And Bill, rather indignantly and angrily, says, no, I do own these files. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going to keep collecting on them. I bought them, and I, they're mine. And uh, this kind of escalates and heats up to the point at which uh, Brandon then <laughs> stands up in his agency and says, there's a rogue there's a rogue agency collecting on this paper. I'm driving down to Buffalo, and we're going to burn this agency to the ground. Who's with me? And four guys, most of whom were ex-cons, stand up and get in the car with him, and they drive down to Buffalo. They're in Bangor, Maine, so it's a 10-hour drive. And they show up, and they end up having a confrontation at Bill's Corner Store, basically at gunpoint. Some of Brandon's guys have guns. Bill has a gun behind the counter. And there's this moment where they're basically ready to go to war over this this file, the package, which is so lucrative. And eventually what happens is is, is Bill says, I'm not a thief. I bought this. And, 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 and this is just the nature of this business. And I bought it from this guy whom I call Kenny. It's not his real name. But this guy, Kenny, is a notorious debt broker in Buffalo. And the minute that, 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 that Brandon hears the name Kenny, he says, it's like, get, you know, guess who robbed me when I was going through the woods? It was Robin Hood, is the way that, that, that Brandon puts it. Like, of course it was Kenny. Uh, and the reason he says that is that he had had run-ins with Kenny in the past, and Kenny had in the past sold paper that had been double-sold or triple-sold or had all kinds of problems with it. So I guess it's just useful to, to, to pan out for a moment and so you understand this wasn't a freak occurrence with just something that was stolen and then someone kind of strong-armed their way back. What happens is is that 
is that this is indicative of the way of the shady manner in which these debts are bought and sold, such that you could have two people both thinking that they own them, ready to fight over it, and no regulation in sight or authorities to kind of broker a peace. And they end up brokering their own kind of peace at gunpoint in which, you know, basically Bill says, I'm not going to collect on it anymore, but I can keep what I've collected thus far. You mentioned four X cons, and one of the things I thought that was uh, notable about this business in this book is your way with portraying these men who really want to be straight, who got screwed up early in life, and the best place and the only place that they could get hired were these debt collection agencies. Yeah, you know, these these are guys... Brandon is this way, and also Jimmy, who I, I read about later in the book, um, who's a who's a an African American guy on the east side of Buffalo. These are guys with very limited life opportunities. Um, not many people want to hire, you know, an ex-con with no college education. And in Buffalo, in particular, the, the, among the few jobs that exist are debt collection. And so they get into this business, and and it it. it it offers upward mobility, a chance to make money, a chance to open your own business in a way that few other few other avenues would exist for them. And I guess, you know, I, I talked at the beginning about how I came into this, that my mother was basically kind of hustled by a debt collector. And so my point of entry, I had every reason to kind of have a, a chip on my shoulder about these guys are a bunch of crooks. And certainly there are plenty of them who, 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 who are and who are, do illegal things. But it changed as I got to know them and got to see that, 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 that this, this line of work was a way for them to do something that was legal and that offered them some amount of redemption uh, in their life. You know, on the other end of the scale, we have Aaron, who finds himself caught between his own two kind of wedges, neither of whom is particularly uh, pleasant to be uh, either a rock or a hard place. So talk a little a bit about uh, Joe and uh, his counterpart, the Superman and Bizarro Superman, as you call them. Yeah. So, so Aaron, as all this is going on, Aaron is basically, you know, he—, he even though he comes from kind of a wealthy and kind of very well-known family in Buffalo, his role in this business is really that of a middleman. He he is the go-between between Brandon, who's helping him buy this debt and helping him collect on it, and his investors. Um, and the investor that I write about in the book is a guy named Joseph. And we go out to dinner one night with Joseph, and Joseph basically is annoyed and dismissive of Aaron because so far Aaron's in, uh, investment hasn't turned a profit. And um, kind of, I almost feel like I should read this section. I mean, basically, he, Joseph is, I'm trying to think, he, I wouldn't say so much as bully, but he's, he's very, he's brusque with Aaron, you know. Um, he, he, he says, for example, when I, when, I, when I make an investment with someone, when I throw a few millions to him, this is Joseph speaking, I like it either to be a, I like it to either be a, a home run or be a bust. If it's a bust, you write it off. If it's a home run, you can party with him. What you don't want is the life support column. And Aaron says, what am I? And he goes, you're in life support. And you can tell that, 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 that Aaron is trying to, um, you know, make this guy happy and trying to give him the returns he has, but largely because the economy hasn't recovered, he just hasn't, Aaron hasn't been able to generate the kind of money that he did initially when he was making so much. And so he's, he's kind of like trying as best he can to make Joseph happy. On the other hand, he's going back to, to Brandon and saying, Brandon, you got to get me the money. You said you'd get me the money you owed me. Uh, you collected this. Where is it? And he's basically dealing, he's like between these two superegos. He's got this kind of master of the universe, Joseph, who's thrown him the millions of dollars to make this money, and he's trying to make him happy. And meanwhile, he's going back to this armed robber who's working for him and saying, quick, get me the money because he's got to give it to Joseph. And it's a, it's a thoroughly unenviable position. One of the things I really like about the, what you do in this book are you create some really great character arcs for us as readers. 
And Aaron's a perfect example because when we meet him, he, you know, he's this uh, pretty uh, untouchable banker. You know, he's on his way to the stratosphere and he kind of gets interested in this little underworld. And but at more and more, you know, his personal life is pretty much a mess. It's no better or worse necessarily than Brandon's except minus the jail and the armed robbery, of course. And you kind of nuance that portrait of Aaron. I think you do a really great job of that. Thanks. You know, I my goal was was to try to show everyone in a human light. It would be mm-hmm. very easy to, to vilify a, a character like Aaron, who's very wealthy and who's kind of getting into this grimy business. But his, I try to show him in a, as a human light as I can. And, and you're right, as he's getting deeper into this collections hole, I mean, as he's, he's beholden to his, his, his investors now and he's dealing with Brandon and he's kind of wondering why he ever left Wall Street, his personal life starts to fall apart. He leaves his, he leaves his wife for this kind of, this woman that his father calls a seductress and a, a femme fatale. And this, this new woman that's in his life is always annoyed at him because Brandon is getting more attention than she is. She's jealous of Brandon's relationship with him. And he, at one point he thinks he's having a heart attack, Aaron does, and his assistant rushes him to the hospital and the doctor says, no, no, it's just uh, ulcers. You have six of them. <laughs> so you can you can kind of see this guy is uh is 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 kind of stressed out of his out of his mind. Well, you know, too, what I think is really interesting is that uh, again as readers, we become pretty quickly fascinated with Brandon and this whole underworld that he's a key to and all the characters in there. And so by the time that we see Aaron and even Joe exhibiting the same fascination. They want to stay in this business even if it loses them money because it is just really darn interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. I talked about this with Aaron quite a bit and I feel like he was drawn into this world almost for the same reason that I was, was that it felt like a Quentin Tarantino movie. I mean, one character we haven't talked about yet but who was there at the showdown in the corner star was this guy Shafiq who was a black Muslim polygamist who also carried a gun and a knife and um, he as brand as he started making more money because he was working for Aaron he started taking on more wives and then he was more beholden to, to Aaron because he had to support these wives um, and he he's got a security firm and he he carries a gun around and he's just such, he, he's a he's like right out of a Quentin Tarantino movie and I think that Aaron was drawn into this world and a kind of fascination by them for the same reason that I was, which is just seemed like these characters were just kind of unima- kind of unimaginably eccentric and colorful. You know, uh, I really um, like the way that you structured the book and paced the book. So I, I'd like you to just uh, step back a little bit and talk about you've done all these interviews over all the years and mm-hmm. been with all these people. Talk about um, gathering your notes and and how you took notes and putting together the book. Right. That's a great question. I think at a moment like this, like when you have all those interviews and you're looking at it and you're, you're trying to follow a piece of debt and you're trying to tell a story about debt collectors and regulation and change, it could quickly become very overwhelming and kind of unruly. And so I really boiled this down in my head. Like, what is this story about? And I kind of like, asked myself, like, how would I describe this book in, like, 30 seconds? And I thought, okay, this is a book about a friendship between a banker and an armed robber. And this business draws them together. And they're drawn together because in the absence of regulation, the banker needs the armed robber to be his muscle. And also in the absence of regulation, the banker sees an opportunity to make money in an inefficient marketplace, and he knows that this armed robber also has a sense for how to buy this debt. And so everything came from that original friendship. And I had dinner with them, and there was that one moment of dinner where I was like, this is the book, this moment where these two, what is drawing these two guys together? Why do they need each other? And why does their need for one another tell this larger story? Because this friendship doesn't exact, exist in a vacuum. It exists in the absence of regulation. 
because this marketplace is so lawless, that's why Aaron needs Brandon. They need each other. They like each other. They also don't trust one another. And I knew that that friendship was at the core of it. And then the second thing that I figured out was this has got to be a story about the debt that gets stolen. Because, and again, how does debt get, how does this, happen. It happens because these are just Excel spreadsheets. So then the second part of it was it should be a detective's tale as we go with Brandon tracking down this debt through the underworld and retrieving it. And and that was at, at the core, like it was that storytelling that, that, that set up the structure in my mind. And because really I'm just a storyteller. Uh, and, 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 and that's, was the governing kind of principle as I was writing this to kind of keep me focused. And I had a great editor at FSG. His name is Alex Starr, who was just brilliant about keeping that laser-like focus on the story. You said before that they don't trust one another. And I think that's really interesting because even though you can sense that they really like one another and they kind of want to trust one another, their whole relationship is based around you know, I'm going to watch you, I need you, you're in my yeah. life because I need you. And so it's a very interesting tension that you set up between these two men. Yeah, I mean, at the moment of their original partnership, uh, uh, what uh, originally when they start working together, Brandon is selling debt to Aaron. And he says, I was doing very well. I was buying it for a penny and selling it. I was buying it for a penny on the dollar and selling it to Aaron for two pennies on the dollar. So when they go into business, Aaron says, "Let's. we're done with that. Let's be partners, and you are just going to work for me. You're going to give me all your sources. You're going to line up all the deals, and any paper that I buy through your or your contacts, I'll give you a commission on, but you're going to, we're just going to be transparency here. And Brandon bristles at that because he his days going back, he says to, you know, on the street is you don't give up your sources, and he finally agrees, but he's always kind of suspicious that that." that Aaron isn't telling him about all the purchases he makes from his sources. And in fact, when he goes down to retrieve the stolen accounts for Aaron, before he goes and confronts Bill at the corner store and puts a stop and retrieves those stolen accounts, he stopped by Aaron's office and says, you owe me 50 grand. I know you've been holding out on me. You made some, you made some deals with some of my sources and, and Aaron writes him a check on the spot. And, and so <laughs> there's some distrust there. And conversely, Aaron is always worried that Brandon is not going to pay him back everything that he should pay back because Aaron has to then hand this over to his investors. Aaron's constantly fretting. Is Brandon going to pay me back what he owes me? And when they meet, sometimes Brandon just pulls out a wad of cash and is peeling off hundreds like a drug deal or something. Um, so these guys need each other. They don't entirely trust one another. They like each other. And they're they're married. They have this kind of strange, crazy marriage, and that dynamic is 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 I, what I wanted to put at the, at the heart of the book. Oh, it's certainly there. You know, you mentioned earlier said like some drug deal, and that's one of the characters at one point in this book does compare this whole underworld to drug deals. There are the big beat, you know, the 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 mass dealers, the the drug distributors, the cartels selling to the big dealers who sell down and down all the way to the street till there's finally somebody calling up Granny and saying, "You owe me uh, seventy five bucks." Yeah, that's Jimmy. Jimmy said to me, Jimmy was himself a former cocaine dealer who then goes and opens his own collection agency. And Jimmy calls debt, his, his phrase for it is he calls it the white man's dope. And he says it's basically the same exact model that existed back in the days when I dealt drugs. He says, I can't go to the banks, directly to the banks and buy this debt. It's just like I can't walk down to Mexico to some cartel and say, yeah, give me you know 100 kilos of cocaine. It doesn't work like that. There's a chain of command, says Jimmy. And that means that there's a sequence of buyers and sellers above you, and you don't know any of them. You just know the guy directly above you. And it starts off with large quantities, and it gets dimed and you know down smaller and smaller until at the bottom, at the street level, they're buying very small pieces of debt, and then they're collecting on it. So to Jimmy's mind, like the whole way that the economy worked was very similar to the drug business, only um, the, there weren't the same risks. Even if his collectors got in trouble for breaking the law, and there are rules that govern what collectors can say on the phone, um, it's the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, but even if they break that and he gets in trouble for that, he's not looking at nearly the same sort of consequences as he would back in the days when he was in the drug business. 
Jimmy's such a great character. So you met Jimmy when you decided to go back to Buffalo and really investigate these storefronts of doom. These are just like um, these little old Cracker Jack shops with the where people will actually uh, pay um, to work there, and they'll pay them fifty bucks a week to sleep there too. The um y- yeah, Jimmy's shop was the first place that I that I that I kind of discovered. This was basically in the wake. I at the beginning I told the story about how my mother had been collected on by some guys who didn't own her debt, and then I thought, okay, let me tell a story from the collector's perspective. And the backstory here is funny. So I had this idea, this is before I wrote the book, and this is, I wrote an email to my editor at The New Yorker, a guy named Daniel Zaleski, and I said, Daniel, I have an idea about doing a story about a Buffalo deck collector. And I kind of assured him, like, I'm, a, I'm from Buffalo, I'm a Buffalo boy, people will talk to me. And he got back to me and said, great, green light, when can you get me 5,000 words? And I was like, Oh man, like I don't, I don't really actually know if I can deliver what I said. So I started trying to get people to talk to me, and no one would talk because there was nothing in it for them. And I actually went to Buffalo once and got nothing. I went to Buffalo twice and got nothing. And I was basically almost ready to give up on the piece. And I went a third time. And I, on that time, I bumped into a guy or met, talked to a guy who I knew from high school. And he said, My brother is a debt collector. His name is Jimmy. Why don't you call him? And I called him up, and Jimmy said, you know what? Why don't you get on to my shop right now because I'm about to go out of business. It's the, 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 the business is so bad, and if you can show people how hard my life is, I'll be happy. And I just showed up at Jimmy's shop with a tape recorder, and the guy was like a gift from God. He was this beautiful talker, and he just told stories, and he helped forth and took me to church and drove me around the street corners, and and um, and then I just let the tape recorder run, and that was that was the start of the of the book, and that made that article in the New Yorker. You said uh, Jimmy said that hard times had come, and part of that was because uh, of a decision made by Chase Bank. Yeah, I mean, what happens, and it's it's Chase, and it's beyond Chase. It's it's it, well, and it's also the economy. But there, there's a few things that are happening. One is that big creditors, banks, and creditors like Chase, are starting to to all of a sudden realize, as the economy crashes, that we can no longer give out credit the way we once giving out credit, um, and so. Uh, all of a sudden, the amount of paper that's out there that's being sold shrinks because there's less credit being given out and there's less debt that exists. But there's another thing, too. Finally, within the last year or two, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is the newly created bureau that Elizabeth Warren championed and came out of the, the, the Frank Dodd Act, is starting to have, be a presence in this business. And all of a sudden, places like Chase and elsewhere are, for the first time, really starting to worry about, oh, uh, are we going to get in trouble for the way that this business has been operated? And they stop selling Chase, stop selling uh, its debt, and stop suing on it, and kind of freezes things up. And that, of course, has ripples down the food chain to guys like Jimmy and beyond who, are, who need this paper in order to stay in business. So what happens is is that there's essentially a paper supply shortage of a mm-hmm. shortage of this bad paper. There's even a convention for these people in Las Vegas where the talk of the town is the Rincon paper. Talk about the Rincon paper. Yeah, so around the time that this shortage of paper is occurring, which is right around 2013, um Brandon Wilson, one of the, my main characters, is starting to get worried because his lifeblood to his business, both as a debt collector and as a debt broker, is making sure that he continues to get this paper that he can either sell or collect upon. And as you say, uh, there's a shortage of this stuff because there's less credit being made and sold off. So he goes to Las Vegas to this debt buyers convention. Um, Debt buyers from all over the country are coming here in February and trying to find deals on portfolios of, of debt, basically Excel spreadsheets that they can buy and sell and then collect on. And everyone there at that particular time is talking about a, um, a, a, a I guess, a, a package of paper called, uh, they call the Rincon paper. And Rincon 
was a, uh, a collection agency that was shut down by the federal government. The FTC brought in, the Federal Trade Commission brought in an enforcement action because they were doing some really bad, illegal, aggressive tactics in collecting against debtors. So the federal government effectively shuts it down. There's an enforcement action, and all of Rincon's assets um, go into the hands of a court-appointed receiver, um, basically the same way that, you know, if you're uh, they, they, they bust a drug dealer and his car would be auctioned off. The same basic idea. So everyone and it's and now this court appointed receiver that is that has taken these assets is auctioning them off. And the assets, I should say, the chief asset here is the paper, um, the actual debt that this business was working. So everyone is trying to figure out, like, what's the deal with this Rincon paper? Is it a good deal? What should you pay for it? What should you not? And Brandon's kind of working his way around the casino where the convention is and working through hotel rooms and trying to get intel on this Rincon paper. And he gets a tip off from a woman who uh, was another broker who had done a lot of business with Rincon, knew, knew the owners of Rincon, was intimately familiar with, with um, the paper that that the court-appointed receiver was holding. And she said, Brandon, I wouldn't bid on that if I were you. After the agency was shut down, before all the paper was rounded up, some of it was stolen, which means there are probably people out there working that debt. And if you buy that, you're in for a world of trouble because it's bad paper. And so uh, Brandon kind of nods his head and eventually decides that he's not going to make a bid on this paper. But it's important to just back up for a second to kind of talk about what this means. This means, and, and, and it, there's never any confirmation, I should say, that we know for sure whether this paper was in fact stolen. I asked someone at the Federal Trade Commission, and his response was, can I tell you 100% certainty that someone didn't steal this paper? No, I can't. So there's this real possibility, though, then, or there is a possibility that this the court is auctioning off bad paper. In other words, the federal government is trying to solve a problem here, but may inadvertently be causing another problem by auctioning off paper that has been stolen and that other people are currently uh, working. Um, that whole thing just kind of blew my mind. Uh, it, it seemed to be perhaps done with the best of intentions, but, but not thought through as carefully as it should have been. There's a real Kafka-esque feel to a lot of this book with, with a, a Kafka via caper <laughs> novels as well. Uh, I, I love uh, a lot of the scenes where, where where you're like in the debt collector's den and they've got these guys on banks of phones and they're talking about, you know, the way they get people to pay and, and that one of the best way is to, you know, say, oh, I've got your sister's number or I have your ex's number and they get the ex on the phone and they say, we got a rat, we got a rat. <laughs> yeah, the ex, Brandon, Brandon always said the ex, the scorned ex-lover was the best person to get because if you got the scorned ex-lover of the debtor in vengeance, she would tell you all the ways you could find this man and, <laughs> and, and successfully extract every you know, coin there was to be had. You, when, as you were, um, write this book, you take us uh, kind of further and further down the chain. So talk a little bit more about Jimmy because he's such a great character. And one of the things that interests me is that these there's two levels here, and, and I, th I want to kind of make this clear. There's buying and selling the Excel spreadsheets where people will buy it and just flip it instantly for $50,000. That's what Brandon does at one point. And then there's buying the spreadsheet and then collecting the debt. And sometimes you'll put people on payment plans and then you'll sell that out too. Yeah. I mean, there's that's right. You can Once you have a payer, someone that's, that's paying an account, um, that account is obviously more valuable than a person you haven't located. And, and, and it's true for judgments, too. This is crazy. But if you successfully sue someone in court and get a judgment against them, um, you can buy and sell those judgments as well. The other distinction that I would make here is that I talked to at one point. So Jimmy is this guy that exists fairly down at the bottom of the, of the debt food chain. He's not able to get the kind of paper that Aaron and Brandon are. He doesn't. He's not buying in bulk. He he's getting kind of the debt that has been bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold and is the cheapest and hardest to collect on debt. I also actually talked to Jimmy's supplier, the guy that he buys debt from, was a guy named Larry, and Larry had a really fascinating tale to tell. 
Yeah, Larry was. I mean, all these characters are so good. Larry's an, is an art, and when he's not like selling debt, he's an artist, and he paints these really beautiful paintings. But Larry tells me, um, "Okay," I said, "Larry, what do you do?" And he said, "Well." I'm a debt broker, and for a long time, I was just dealing with like really reputable clients. I would buy debt and sell it. But what happened was, he says, at some point, it just got so crazy, all these guys started coming out of prison and offering him cash for files. And he was buying and selling files that he had no idea whether, where they were coming from, whether there was a chain of title. At one point, Larry even admits to me that he gets swindled by a guy that he's dealing with. So in Vengeance, he hires a hacker from China who gets into his gets into this guy's computer, steals Excel, Excel spreadsheets from this guy, and then sells them. So this is the crazy manner in which this, this, this dealing is going on. So at the very kind of bottom of the food chain where Jimmy is kind of the space that he is inhabiting. Now, you also take the time to tell some of the stories of the debtors themselves, the people who find themselves in these situations. And these are some really interesting and often, to be frank, heart-rending and kind of depressing stories, especially given that, as you say, if people set up a payment plan, these lots of these debts are out of stat. So these people don't even really necessarily owe the money. They don't have to pay it back anymore. But once they make even the smallest payment, it can bring the debt back into stat. Yeah, this is a crazy and little-known fact uh, about debt that's what they call out of stat or time-barred, that it may the, the, the statute of, of limitations may have expired. It may be so old that it's no longer legally enforceable. But if I'm the collector on the phone and I somehow convince you to pay even $1 of what you owe – that revives the debt and resets the statute of limitations. And all of a sudden, that date is now legally enforceable. I mean, it's like, it's pretty crazy. Um, so this is one of the things that, this is one of the realities in collecting, in collecting this out-of-state debt. You know, uh, Brandon, is, who who's, does this, is such a, a great character. And one of the things that... Um, you say about him is that the more money he has, the more he becomes like Thurston Howell, and the less money he has, the more he's like Robin Hood. Yeah, I had this one moment. This is what Brandon tells me. There's um, there's this one moment I have with him where we're in Bangor, and we go out to the bars, and at the end of the night, he starts talking about this one moment where he made this enormous purchase for Aaron. Uh, he purchased like uh, almost $10 million worth of debt for Aaron. And in that single transaction, he made a commission of about $500,000. And he, I asked him, wow, what was that like for you? You know, you'd been a few years before that, you'd been in prison for armed robbery. And he said, you know, that day I just stayed at work. And I, the deal went down in the morning, and I was there until like 11 p.m. at night. And at 11 p.m., someone came into the office and saw I was still there and said, what are you doing? And he felt depressed, weirdly depressed. He said, I always thought it was about the, about the money, that the money was going to make me happy. But it was just kind of about somehow beating the other guy or, or, or proving something to himself. And the minute he did it, he was kind of de weirdly deflated by it. And, and he, not just that, but he, he said that he thought he was a worse person with money, that he, that he liked himself better, that he thought he was more honorable and more principled when he was scrappier and had less. He liked himself better when he had less. It was just one of these rare moments of introspection um, and, on, and honesty. Um, and, I think it's part of what made me feel so drawn to, to Brandon as a character that he was capable of, of kind of thinking about his, his life in those terms. You do a great job of uh, drawing a portrait of the friendship between uh, kind of this triangle with Brandon, uh, Ryan, and Aaron. So talk a little bit about Ryan, who's a, uh, seems he spent a, all these people spent a lot of time in prison, seem like pretty, you know, right on kind of guys. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to like sanitize them or make them all sound perfect. And I, tr but I think that, um, yeah, they're certainly likable and 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 kind of charming. And Ryan's no exception. Um, Ryan is a childhood friend of Brandon's, 
and uh, Ryan ends up doing um, a lot of time in jail for because he got caught. I guess it was buying or uh, smuggling some six thousand pounds of marijuana. So anyway, he goes to prison, and the two of them have always helped each other out. Uh, when Brandon was in prison and Ryan was out, Brandon, uh, Ryan was helping Brandon's family, and vice versa. So they have this very deep connection that stretches all the way back to their days in the street. And when Ryan gets out of prison, Brandon's already set up in, in the debt business. And he tells Ryan, he says, look, this is, this is the way to go. This is how you can make your money don't have to get in trouble with the law. Uh, there's profits he made here, and he says, "Come out to Bangor. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you how to do this, and then you can go out and do it on your own." And so Ryan comes out to Bangor and learns the trade, and then sets out and opens up his own shop. And when he has to come and buy uh, paper, he starts buying it from from Brandon. But he's Brandon is his only supplier of paper, and Ryan comes to realize that's not a good situation to be in, to be totally beholden to Brandon. And Brandon also owes him some money. Um, I guess Brandon had fallen in some trouble, and he'd borrowed a bit from Ryan. So when we go out to Las Vegas together, there's this weird kind of moment where um, Ryan is, is, is kind of worrying that Brandon owes him money, and Aaron is worrying that Brandon owes him money. They're both kind of deeply connected to this guy in different ways. One of them is like a former Wall Street banker. The other is like a guy who recently got out of prison. And they're trying to understand like, well, is, is Brandon going to make good? What's going on with Brandon? And they're kind of weirdly united. Uh, I'll just said one more moment to this is that um, Aaron is kind of taken with, 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 with both these guys, with both Ryan and Brandon. And he's taken with their friendship too. And he says that like um, – he feels that there's like a code of honor going back to the streets that these guys have, and he feels that, that doesn't exist in his life, that all the fancy people that he knows who wears expensive suits and work at law firms or at banks, none of them have even a semblance of the kind of loyalty and sense of friendship and the fences that, that, that these guys have. Um, and that, that's no small part of the reason that, 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 that Aaron is doing business with Brandon. He kind of weirdly reveres Brandon as this kind of like noble outlaw. And and again, Brandon, I think, senses this and I think hams up that role uh, very much so because it's almost part of what his mystique is. Well, he hams up his entire life. He There's a, a great scene where he's just in a, a – Suite and he's yelling so loud at the in this uh, hotel suite that the neighbors are complaining. <laughs> yeah, there's a that that is a, that is a crazy little scene. Um, I, that was another little section that I could have read too, but that if I can find it, can I read it? Sure. Yeah. Um, so to paint the scene for you here, we're in Vegas, and Aaron is there too. Brandon's there. Ryan's there. Brandon has spent all of Vegas searching for paper. To buy, and he's finally got his score. Now that he's got his score, he's kind of partying a bit, and he's got all of his boys and all of his guys up in this beautiful Las Vegas suite. And he's just kind of like, he's partying hard, and he's a little out of control. He's being so loud that people in the room over there are calling. He's passing out these cards that say, Brandon Wilson, problem solver. Um, which is kind of great. I and want one of those he, cards. Yeah, I know, he's got a silver. He's got a silver car case. This is Brandon Wilson, problem solver, and he's kind of doing his shtick. And he's going around and he's pointing out the different people in the room. And this guy's my boy. And this guy's my boy. And he points over at Ryan and says, uh, "Yeah, I'll just read this to you." Uh, he's talking about Ryan when Ryan how when Ryan was sending money to his mother and his girl when he when when even when Ryan was in jail, he says. He, he was in jail sending my mother and my girl. Brandon paused for a moment. Not everyone in the room was listening, and this seemed to irk him. Hey, shouted Brandon. Conversation dropped to a murmur. Then he resumed. Sending my mother and my girl $1,200 a month after he was already in prison. Now, how many guys are going to do that? Brandon pointed to George. It was one of the other guys there. I had a problem, and George stepped up and said, Brandon, if something happens to you, don't worry. I'll take care of your wife and kids. George nodded appreciatively. The room was fairly quiet now. Brandon was on a roll, and no one was going to compete with him. It wasn't that everyone deferred to him obsequiously, as if he were a rock star entitled to their respect and love solely by his sheer charisma. 
Rather, Brandon created the impression that he was a charging bull, a creature whose sheer force was so brutal and overpowering that you had to move the hell out of the way once he got going. Sure, he was hamming it up a bit, inflating himself into the caricature of the brash armed robber who'd done ten years in the can. But even this performance was part of the deal. This was his shtick, his talk-off, his chest-thumping war dance. And as loud, lewd, and as unbearable as he could be, everyone seemed to believe that you needed a Brandon Wilson to scare off all the con men, hucksters, and charlatans in the industry. You needed a guy who'd survived in the prison yard in order to help you succeed in a rude business. And if he was a little out of control, a little erratic, a little dangerous, then all the better. Because he was the great... Boston alpha male, here to make a buck and keep the wolves at bay. Brandon was no fool, quite the opposite. He was a quick study. On some level, he understood the role that was expected of him, and he played it to the hilt. That is so great. Now, for all the honor I think you find in Brandon and Ryan and all his cohorts, eventually you decide to go to the bottom of the barrel in Georgia, where you find not surprisingly, at the bottom of the barrel, lawyers. Yeah, this was this was so crazy. The, the Georgia chapter. Um, I'll just tell you one story that shows you what happened. So I I follow this package of debt, the same package that gets stolen and retrieved, and a number of accounts from those packages are sold to a lawyer down in Georgia who sues. And the reason the lawyers are the at the bottom of the food chain is because they have the power to get a judgment from the courts. And if the debtor hasn't paid you willingly over the phone, once that judgment is in place, the lawyer can then just garnish the person's wages or get right into their bank account and simply clean them out. The, the problem with this process is, is, is twofold. One is that most of the debtors never show up in court, so the judges just enter these default judgments without ever looking at the underlying evidence. And of course, there often is no underlying evidence because all they have is the spreadsheet. They don't have any of the account statements or the signed contracts or any of the things that could kind of attest to the validity of the debt and corroborate the exact amount that's supposedly owed. So one day I go to this courthouse, right? And um, I'm at a courthouse where some of the debtors from the package have passed through. So I figure, hey, this will be a good way for me to see what goes on in court. So I'm in the courthouse and I'm talking to these two debtors who are trying to figure out who owns the debt that they're being sued over. And before we go into court, a young man who's a lawyer uh, calls out their name. Their names are George, uh, are Kian and Frederick. So Kian and Frederick go over to this young lawyer and the young lawyer starts to explain to them, I represent my client has purchased your debt and owns it. And why don't we just work out a little deal right here before we go into the court and before the judge? And then he, he reaches into his pocket or his briefcase and pulls out a sheet of paper that looks like a mock-up of a credit card bill, only it clearly states this is not a real statement and is just being shown to the consumer for the first time. And all it has is that their names and a, uh, an amount they owe, their address, and that's about it. And and they're looking at this amount. It's for an American Express card that this company that they, that they claim that they owns. And so they're trying to make sense of this. And at some point I pipe up and I say, um, excuse me, do you have any other evidence or any more detailed records about this debt? And the young lawyer turns to me and says, who are you? <laughs> and uh, I say, uh, I'm a writer writing a book. And he says, well, you can't, you can't be here. You, you're practicing law without a license. And I said, no, no, no. I'm just asking a question. He says, well, we'll bring you before the judge which I thought was a joke until 10 minutes later, me and Kian, the woman that owns the debt, are being sworn in together because the judges called me to the front of the room. We're like being sworn in by like co-defendants. And I'm actually like nervous, even though I know I've done nothing wrong. Like I'm, my, my heart is beating in my chest because I thought like, oh my God, I'm ensnared in this, this thing now. So the, the, the judge turns to the lawyer who's suing on this debt and says, you know, kind of gestures for him to make his case. So he proceeds with his argument, which is that I am practicing law without a license. And he says, Your Honor, please tell Mr. Halpern that he could face criminal sanctions for doing this. So I'm just like, this is, you've got to be kidding me. So I try to explain to the judge that I just asked a simple question and that I wasn't representing them and no one could possibly think that I was. And and he says, well, Your Honor, tell him that he can't put any of this in his book. And the judge says, yes, that's right. You can't put any of this in your book. And I'm 
okay? Finally, she turns to this guy and says, well, what do you want to do about the matter at hand over this debt that you're suing on? And he says, let me confer with my client. And he walks out in the hallway and he comes back and he says, Your Honor, we'll be dropping this matter. So me and Kian, the, the, the debtor, we look at each other like, what just happened? And we walk out into the hallway and we end up talking to this other lawyer there who was from G Georgia Legal Services. And he tells us, oh, I'm not in the least bit surprised that that happened. We said, why not? He said, oh, because there's no evidence in these cases. If you ask these guys to prove their case, if you push back and start asking questions the way that you guys had done, they're going to back down because they don't have the evidence. And this was this kind of amazing moment for me because all throughout this book, I've been following this trail, this package of this debt, this paper that isn't even really paper. And the minute you hold it up to a magnifying glass and try to look at it, it's like the whole thing just vanishes, like it wasn't even real in the first place. The question, where's your evidence, proves to be kryptonite for the debt collectors. Yes, yes, exactly. Like they shrink up and shrivel in nothing and then that just the whole thing goes away. And that's the difference between you like being in the hole for thousands and thousands of dollars or not. I mean that that that's that is what determines their financial future. It's so crazy. And and in some of these uh states we now in America are instituting the practice of putting debtors in prison which makes this stuff doubly scary for people who are in that situation yeah I don't look at this a great deal in my books but this is something that's been coming up a lot particularly on when it involves fees that that, that you know there's some sort of municipal fee you didn't pay a parking ticket or something and then you're held in contempt of court for this and then you can end up in jail um, yeah d this in this realm, debtor's prison is not something just out of, a, out of a Dickens novel. It's a reality. Jake Halpern's new book is Bad Paper, Chasing Debt from Wall Street to the Underworld. Thank you for speaking with me, Jake. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.